0: Well, welcome to Allen Bible Church. I just add my word of greeting to you and those, uh, in the name of the Lord Jesus, along with those you've already heard. Uh, glad that you are here to worship with us. And um, for me, it is a joy to worship alongside of you, to hear worship, um, to be a part of it, um, and to be a part of you, and you to be a part of me and my family. And so I just want to say that. Thank you to the worship team uh, for leading us. Well, I almost uh, wouldn't be standing here because. um, Oh, thank you. Appreciate it. I almost wouldn't be standing here um, because my senior year at Auburn, which was ancient times ago, um, I almost quit. I began to think my estimation was this is pointless. Uh, because I had known before I went to college that it seemed like God's trajectory for me was ministry. Therefore, I pick a major that has the least math classes, and it really doesn't matter what I major in. But I chose public relations communication. Um, it's like, well, it has a few speech classes, but I'm really not interested in that because I'm not going to be a spin doctor for a company that's doing shady stuff. So I'm not going to be. A, I'm sorry if you're in PR; that doesn't. It, it's not a shot at you. Um, but you know, I began to. You you begin to wear thin and you begin to estimate you begin to take stock and go do I really want to do this But then of course for my parents that might put them in a mild panic because it's like you're in the last year Like you've got two quarters left You need to suck it up sonny boy. They didn't say that Um, because that would have pushed me over the edge But I was asking what is the point? I don't need this degree to go into what I'm going to go into. Well, fast forward a few years. After college, I worked two years in the corporate world in Memphis. Then I came out here to go to Dallas Theological Seminary. I squeezed the four year masters into five. But I only did that because around year three, I was telling a man that was a mentor to me, like, man, I'm already, I get paid 15 hours a week, but I work 40 hours a week at the church. I love ministry. That piece of paper is pointless. You catch a theme? My estimation was I'm already doing ministry full throttle for not full dollars, but I'm not in it for that, and why do I need this piece of paper? And some of you have heard the story before. This is not the point of why I'm saying it, but it's also at least worth it for everyone in here thinking about quitting something. That mentor will love me enough to say, well, buddy, I know it's just a piece of paper, but that piece of paper tells me something about you and your character, that you have the ability and capacity to sustain and finish something you started Ooh. <laughs> and so i ducked my head bowed my head and i went back and i finished my degree at dallas seminary therefore i am here um by god's providence in that now, I, I say that because i don't know if you've ever wondered what's the point could be with your job Uh, Even this week and probably on a weekly basis with our sons and some variety of that question, what is the point? Why does it matter if I turn this in on time? Why does it matter that I do this homework? It doesn't even matter that I, you know, you fill in the blank, right? And what I've been honest with them about, and sorry if you haven't been honest with your children, I thought the same thing all the time through elementary. Well, not elementary. That was all recess and stuff. But middle school, high school, Right? Like, what's the point? Because am I going to end up doing quadratic equations? No way. So what's the point? And I'm wondering if you ever wonder that, not only with your job, I guarantee some of you are like, I work in something triple dysfunctional beyond the office, Um, or you work under someone who takes credit for your work, and all you do is you get the red pin on stuff, that you're not good enough, you don't measure up, or they don't put value, they don't estimate your value there with enough currency in your pocket, and not that you're greedy, just it doesn't seem to match up, and you go, what is the point? And the longer that we go asking what is the point, we grow weary and we say, I'm done. And we had that right hit uh, a few years ago, the great resignation. We're still in the backwash of that. We're still in the wake of that. And it's affecting every arena and every area of life, including for us who are the church and who gather as his church for worship. Have you ever wondered what is the point? What is the point for us gathering here? What is the point for us to sing songs, to take a wafer and some juice, and that wafer tastes like paper? What is the point? And we can grow cynical. And we can grow bitter. And we can begin to say, there is no point because I see no payoff. So I think I'm on my way out. Now, most of us in here um, don't have the gall to get there. And I'm not saying most of us here are on that precipice of making that kind of decision like i'm out i'm going to completely disconstruct my faith but that's a growing trend and we go hey maybe i'll try that way maybe life will be satisfying then maybe what i'm looking for is in kicking god to the curb and try my own deal or try the latest deal and that is human nature it's human nature to grow weary particularly in worship if we feel like what is the point even as you're like, oh wow, we're going through Malachi again, some prophet in the 400s, what is the point? Well, the people of Malachi's day wondered the same thing, what's the point? And their worship had been begun as a slow fade, but it began to erode and erode, and then they began to, to drift farther and farther from worship which simply means to declare or demonstrate God's worth. When we sing He is, that is worship. We are saying He is, as long as we fill in the correct who He is, that is declaring His worth. They were drifting from and drifting into wearyship. Yes, that's a buddy made-up word, but it's the combination of, well, we're going through the motions of worship. We're showing up. And we're sitting in the brown chairs in the old Walmart Garden and Tire Center, and we're singing the songs, and some of us are on key, and some of us aren't. That's okay, sing loudly. But what is the point? Where is the payoff? I'm not sure it matters. And here's the verse I want you to see we're going to start off with, and then we'll come back around to this. But they asked, what's the point? And they came to this conclusion That it is pointless, it is purposeless, it is futile, it is empty. That's what the word vain means. It means there's a veneer, but there's nothing under it. There's an alluring promise of this God, and if we serve him, but there's no payoff. And here's what they say. This is their estimation of worshiping and serving the Lord. This is God speaking through Malachi to them. We're going to come back to the verse before it, but he says, You have said it is vain to serve God. Yours might say it's pointless. And what profit is it that we have kept his charge, that we have walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts? They're saying we've even been serious about this. We've been mourning about it. We, in our estimation, have come to the Point, our estimation is that it is vain to serve the Lord. Our estimation is it's pointless. You've been there? Are you there? If you are there, I want you to know you have company. We're going to see some company in other parts of Scripture, we're going to see some company in Malachi, and you have company sitting right around you. No matter how put together and buttoned up they may seem, Some of us know because we barely made it to church today. And you, you sat down and you thought, what's the point? God has good news for you and me. God has a, let me lift you up from your pity party or from your cynicism that's just nothing but toxic, and let me invite you into what we just sang, rest for the weary, hope for the hopeless, Help for the hurting. That is the message. He says, I know that it feels that way. I know that you're like, I'm not sure I can do this anymore or, or even semi-try to hold on to any hope of you, God, because it's too painful and it's too long, and, and I want to move on from you. And I hope that my aim today is to show the foolishness Of abandoning and to show the richness that God has for us if we will hope again in him if we will trust him and if we will devote ourselves to him even when we're weary to worship and so we're going to read the the text before us after um, I show us the dispute he had said last week return to me the people in Malachi's day They'd been going through the religious motions. They're the people of Judah, which is part of Israel. And God had said, hey, I've got this special relationship with you. And so even as Mark talked about, they were to bring their first and best from their flocks to say, God, I trust you enough and I esteem you enough, I worship you enough that I'll give you my first and best. And I'll trust that little Timmy the lamb that we sacrificed, you'll you'll make sure and feed our family, that kind of idea. But they had given him not their first and best, but leftovers. Uh, Mike prayed it. We talked about it a couple weeks ago. Also, God was pretty much an afterthought. We can know that we're on our way to weariness when we have, we rarely are thinking of Him. We're, he's definitely not our first thought. And so we show up at a day like today, and if He's been an afterthought, then our worship right now, this morning, may not come from a, a robust trust, robust gratitude. Don't feel guilty about that. Let God meet you right now. Part of why we sing the songs we do is to rehearse them so that my heart might catch up again to what, tr- what is true, no matter how I feel this morning. But here's what he said, return to me. And they said, how shall we return? He said, well, you guys have been skimping on not giving me your first and your best. He actually touches their wallets or their livestock. And he says, bring your first and your best and see if I don't provide all you need and more. And in 312, if you sneak a peek at that, 312, he says, In fact, all the, the nations, when they see that, they see that I have provided for you abundantly, and they see you, I'm living with shalom. That's the Jewish word for wholeness, satisfaction, and delight in life. That's what we're all after. He says, When they see that, it will be because you return to me, and I return to you, and I, I brought that wholeness peace contentment satisfaction to you and i provided things in your barn and your livestock or whatever and the nations around will go whoa who is their god and if malachi ended at 312 this would be an awesome book wouldn't it but the problem is even though god had invited them to return to him he's being gracious merciful he's not holding everything against them they, there seems to be a little time between 312 and 313 because the next slide, God says, Well, your words have been arrogant against me, if you look at your scripture. Your words have been hard against me. And they say, Well, what have we spoken against you? And then God says, Well, when you say, we're going to read now the entire passage. And I want you to do a couple of things. Be on the lookout for estimations in wearyship. They're all weary. We're all weary at times. But what are the estimations of those who say it's vain to serve God? We're going to call them the arrogant because God says you've been arrogant toward me. And then he says it two verses later. Then we're going to look at the estimations of the faithful. It's one verse, verse 16. And then we're going to look at um, the rest of it is what are the Lord's estimations of the two different responses? What are the the estimations of the arrogant? What are the estimations of the faithful that God is looking for? And what are the estimations of the Lord himself? Uh, You can follow along on the screen or in your copy of God's word, Malachi 3, 13 through 4, 6. Verse 13, Your words have been arrogant against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? Well, you said it's vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his charge, that we have walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts? So now, so they say, because they think of it as empty and futile, they said, well, we're going to shift our our worldview. We're going to shift our paradigm of how we're going to do life and what life is about. They said, "So now, verse fifteen, we call the arrogant blessed. Not only are the do, uh, are, not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but they also test God and escape." Verse sixteen. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before Him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem His name. They will be Mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I prepare My own possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. So you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. Chapter 4, verse 1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. So they're going to have no lineage heritage after them verse two but for you for you who fear my name the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall now that should mean more here in texas than new york but i think we're also mostly not petrified, so we'll talk about that for a second in a minute Verse 3 You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the days which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. He's saying, This is what I've been after. I love you. I'm I'm, I'm lovingly confronting you so that our our relationship can be restored, so that you might live life in trust with me in the way I designed it to be lived. That's what he's saying there. Verses 5 and 6 Behold, He's looking forward to the future. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. We won't have time much time on that, but that is at least looking toward John the Baptist, if not John the Baptist, as well as some other messenger who will prepare the way for the Lord on the day of the Lord. Uh, at his second coming first coming and second coming so the estimations of wearyship there's the estimations of the arrogant the estimations of the faithful and then the estimations of the lord of hosts now what i want to do is put this in context a little bit more with the story uh, from my own family because I don't want this to be, and we never want this to be a history lesson. It's already enough to try to keep up with where is Malachi and what's going on. We, we, if you're newer here, we do try to teach the original, what was the original intent, the original audience, and all that. Because we can't know what God's saying to us. We don't know what he was, was saying back then and to them. But to help us, um, as God is, um, again, this is the sixth dispute from his people to him. Let's give them a little room here, although this is heightened, the sixth one. Remember, at the time, it's very 2023-ish, crops are failing, the economy is tanking, there's corruption in the government and political uh, leaders, there's corruption in the priesthood and in in the religious community. Um, You almost can't trust anything going on and then on top of that, because the economy is, is on them, and then you have enemies on the outside, life every day was like, I'm not sure if I can take much more. Okay, let's, let's give them the room. Let's put ourselves in that situation and go, it's a hard and difficult time, and it's been a long time. Like, it's been a long time. Why are we still under another um, nation who's ruling us? Why are we still waiting for God to bring his kingdom like he promised? Okay. There's a lot to understand, and that can mess with our estimations. Estimation, again, means what do I, well, how do I evaluate this? What value do I give to God if this is the way life is and if this is a hard, hard stretch of years, including hundreds of years? Well, a few years ago, to, to give you a story from my life, um, a few years ago, uh, I made the trip back to Memphis, I believe this is like '09, maybe, um, uh, to, to surprise my dad as he was being inducted into the Memphis Amateur Athletics Hall of Fame. Um, Penny Hardaway, some people like that, you know those people. Um, he's from Memphis. And some of you know my dad's story. Uh, he's a racquetball coach. There's not a lot of those on the earth. I think they're even like extinct now. Uh, it's a dying sport because a pickleball dead gummit. Um, But my my dad is the winningest racquetball coach ever in the college ranks. He won more. If you know John Wooden, UCLA basketball, he won more national championships than John Wooden uh, in a row. And Memphis um, wanted to honor that. But him being the winningest coach ever uh, and also the United States national coach, at some point found himself put to the side, ostracized, by U.S. the U.S. Racquetball Association, even though he'd won them multiple world championships as well. But they did so because of his faith in Jesus. And so, for the longest, and it might have seemed to my dad, I stood for him in an interview, um, and yet, look, I've been, I've been blackballed. I've been pushed to the side. And perhaps, like Malachi's day, my dad could have even been tempted to say, well, the evil sure do live a pain-free life. Um, there's more to that statement, just to let you know, there was some corruption in U.S. racquetball going on, and that's why they got rid of my dad, because they wanted to continue certain seedy practices. And so he probably thought of, well, I should maybe defend myself or, or maybe I should indulge myself. I mean, I deserve this. I'm, he, he, he may have thought, I'm just growing weary waiting on you, God. But my dad remained faithful, not perfect, but he remained faithful. How did he and how do we, when we feel like what's the point of keeping Our eyes on him, our estimation on him, our trust in him. Well, Malachi gives these instructions for our souls. These are three estimations to call us to esteem God's name above all, no matter the weather, no matter how you feel, no matter the bank account, no matter your past. The invitation is still, return to me and I will return to you. Well, what are the estimations of the arrogant? The, right there, he's got it up there for you. What's the point? Well, first of all, I want you to know that, that arrogant in verse 13, and it's also done in verse 15, even though yours might say, he spoke hard against me, the, the idea hard there can be harsh, it could be arrogant, it could be um, uh, really shaking your fist at. And then interestingly, uh, in 15, it can also mean that sort of insulting, but also insolent, lazy, and at one translation of the word is audaciously unuseful. So the audaciously, they have the audacity to raise their fist at God, to question God, to devalue God in their estimation. And so they become audaciously also unuseful. Now, God doesn't look at us and go, you need to be my useful pawns. He wants it for us to live into uh, the flourishing that he intends for us. He designed you. He placed you places. We say this all the time. So that you're not just worshiping him when you're here, but when we go to 301 this afternoon, or you go to your neighborhood, or you're with your life group, or you're doing your schoolwork, or you're trying to you know, work to serve your boss, and that boss is, is non-appreciative, we can still declare his worth, And by that, be of use to him. Again, not that he's looking to use us up, but it's actually like this is the very purpose for which I've given you, I've designed you so that you might experience wholeness, satisfaction, delight, in not making life about yourself, but about honoring and esteeming his name and therefore also being a benefit to others to even letting them know you esteem them as a fellow human being made in God's image, that they matter. And people are dying and starving to hear that. But they're asking, what's the point? What is the point, God? It doesn't pay. And they say, we go around and we mourn. And why, do we, why should we keep your charge? And you know all this about uh, the sacrifices and the things that we're supposed to do in terms of our relationship with you, but they had this hypocritical attitude and it's exposed. It's exposed because they say, it's vain to serve you, but it's interesting or empty to serve you when their serving of him was empty. Their singing the songs was empty. Their giving of money was empty. Their doing good stuff for others was empty he calls it in chapter 1 verse 10 useless in other words irony is you're not showing up really esteeming my name really devoting yourself to me really trusting me it's a veneer or even worse and we need to think through if this is us currently because it is all of us at some point Am I actually only doing these things to get something from him? And that's what they're doing. They have the audacity then to blame him when life doesn't work and he doesn't come out of the bottle like the genie they want him to be. And God says, I'm not going to behave according to your demands. I'm not in debt to you. I have set my love on you. That's how he starts the book of Malachi. I have loved you and you weren't lovely i have loved you and i am loving you and i will love you return to the perfect love that can cast out those fears those insecurities and no contentment and satisfaction in the one who has loved you but they refuse they've grown cynical they say all this religious stuff but their hearts are far from him and with these people we might look in a mirror With these people, we see a group that have only a relationship with God through formalities and externalities, going through the motions, doing the things you're supposed to do, and making sure you don't say the words you're not supposed to say, but their hearts are not in it. And God's saying, I'm not after. David tells us, I'm not after you sacrificing a bull or a sheep. What I want is your heart. And what we most need, what he's most made us for, is to give our hearts completely to him. And until we do that, we will be restless. And until we do that, we will constantly be looking for what will satisfy and nothing will satisfy. That's what Augustine said. Our hearts are ever restless until they find their rest in you. That's what God is after. And he's saying, your estimations of me are hypocritical. They're way off base. But they said, we changed our paradigm because of it. We served you and served you, and where did it get us? We haven't, we haven't seen any of the, the payback coming. And so then, verse 15, we say that the arrogant, they're blessed. They're, they're, they're provided for. They, they're living the good life. They're built up rather than torn down. And he, they're kind of referring back to chapter 1, um, verses 2 to 5, where he says, Uh, Jacob and Esau and Esau he said that those proud people I've set my love on Jacob and his people Um, and Esau I have not and he says and they're going to plan they're going to say we're rebuilding look at us he said I'll just destroy it again he said but in our estimation we see Esau's people they seem to be building or in our day and age we look at the arrogant Uh, we look at those who are self-assured who are like uh, looking out for number one, who are all about their brand and they're lining their pockets and they're even hostile toward God or maybe indifferent toward God. They're living the, however they want to live, no matter who they abuse, who they step on or whatever. And we're like, what is happening? And we, just like these folks, they didn't start out going, you know what, we're just, we're on the arrogant side because that's what's what we really want in life. no. I think they, they, they genuinely wanted to worship and serve the Lord, but they kept getting tripped up on. As I look around, I think the evil people are getting away with it. I think the arrogant are getting away with stuff. They even test you and escape, he said in verse 15. Well, I want you to see in Ecclesiastes, Solomon, who is one of those guys who had it all at his fingertips was the wisest man on the earth until he was also an idiot in First Kings 11. Sorry, I can say idiot right now. It's the Greek.
1: It was that they took their
0: heart, his heart toward their gods, other gods. And he, in the end of his life, is most likely when Ecclesiastes is written, he said, I've tried it all. I know what you're thinking. I know that thing you saw on Instagram yesterday, and you go, but if I just have
1: that kind of pillow, my neck pain will go away. You get those? My neck pain will go away, and I will have, you don't say this, making our bed
0: back to the what's the point and 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 so Solomon at the end of his life writes Ecclesiastes he's going I've done it all I've paid for it all I've had wine women song wealth and he said all of it guess what word he uses all of it is vanity empty. doesn't satisfy he says but here's one way we can get we can get tripped up chapter eight Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly by God, therefore the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. Although a sinner does evil a hundred times and may lengthen his life, he's like, it does happen. Still I know that it will be well for those who fear God, who fear him openly. Next, last slide. But it will not be well for the evil man, and he will not lengthen his days like a shadow. Why? Because he does not. Fear God. Those who don't fear God are a fool. And ultimately, though they may look like they've got the life, ultimately it will not pan out. Now, that might not even happen until after this life, but there will be judgment for those who oppose God, who are self-indulgent. And You know, I, I want to pause here, and then we're going to move on to the faithful. And what God thinks. But I thought about as going through this passage, the self absorbed, or when I'm in danger of becoming self absorbed, there's a pain in my life, like my dad at that the deal, like, well, is anybody gonna recognize me? We're tempted to go, I'm gonna I'm gonna self indulge here. And we can become more and more, not just self indulgent, but self absorbed. And this if, if we're going that path, the self absorbed will be frustrated by the Lord and or they will be judged by the Lord, and it will all be for nothing. And it will be the ultimate vain destination for them. So that's their estimations. The estimations of the arrogant is it's vain to serve the Lord. Why? Because they've begun to just see a relationship with God as transactional. If I obey you in these ways, then you're on the hook for me. How transactional is your relationship with the Lord? Because he says, I'm not, I'm not your vending machine. I'm not your genie. I don't owe you. Often when we're angry and frustrated at anything in life, it's because we've become self-absorbed and we think we're entitled to something, especially in our circles, going, I've kept my nose clean, God. God. You know, I've not been drinking, smoking, or chewing, or dating girls who are doing whatever, and we think God owes us. And the self-absorbed, the self-entitled, will be frustrated because God never designed life to be that way, and life is not found there. Um, To transition to the faithful, the estimations of the faithful, verse 16, I'm going to come back backwards in just a second verse 16 it'll be on the screen maybe yes then so while this is happening is really what's saying while the arrogant are are you know shaking their fist at god you know it's vain to serve you we think they we'll just go with the arrogant we'll just envy the celebrities or whatever then at that same time those who feared the lord I'm picturing it's a much smaller group. Those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. They're like, let's have a life group. And that life group, let's rehearse who God is, who we are to him, how he has provided for us, and how he is our only hope and sustainer and good shepherd. They spoke to one another to rehearse who their God is. And says, and the Lord gave attention and heard it. Now, he heard the other ones because he answered them. But in this way, he receives it, and there's a smile. He receives it, and he says, now that's what I'm looking for. Even though life is tough, you're going to pull together? And the last part says, a book of remembrance was written about these people before God for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. What's their estimation? Yeah, life is hard. We're not sugarcoating it. We're not acting like, you know what? Jesus loves me. This I know. Like, and I, I'm still hurting. I'm still hungry, whatever it is. But they are rehearsing the truth of who God is, no matter how it feels, no matter how hard life is, and no matter how hard they want to give up. And they're even willing to go, you know what? I think I'm having this uh, bitterness coming in me because I think God owes me. And and someone else says, yeah, I've been there too. That's not where you want to get. It. Let's root that out. Which the author of the Hebrew says, root out all bitterness. And bitterness comes from you didn't come through God. And so a book of remembrance is written about those people who fear the Lord, and who esteem His name. But let me say this: they didn't. Not, they not only, not only did they not sugarcoat it. They didn't Sunday school it. They didn't KLTY it. They didn't slap a bumper sticker on it. They didn't make swag with verses that. Felt empty and hollow. They processed with one another and with the Lord, and the Lord says, that's the response I'm looking for. And I'm worthy to be feared, which means respected, trusted, and to receive respect and esteem for my name. And like he had said before, return to me, I'll return to you. He says, I got your back. I will provide for you. He's not saying I'll change all your circumstances. I'll build up your bank account. Don't hear any of that. He's saying, I may not change it a bit about the season or stretch you're in, but I'm in it with you. And the, the, the picture there of a book of remembrance is of a king. Kings would go, who are the faithful people in the kingdom? Because you always got to watch out. Who's going to try to take you out? That's why Nehemiah as a cupbearer is an important position. Somebody's going to drop a little something in the wine, and the king's dead. So he says, who are the faithful people? And they'd write down records. This is like that. God being, the Lord being king, he says, I want a book of remembrance written about them so that even in this life, if it never gets better for them, if it never, they never get their just rewards or whatever, they'll be rewarded and commended, well done, good and faithful servant, when they enter into his kingdom. He says, that's the response I'm looking for. But what I'm telling you is they didn't Sunday school answer and dismiss the difficulties of life they processed. I'm going to give you another story from Scripture, but through Psalm 73. A couple slides here. It's Psalm of Asaph. Uh, One of my very favorite, I know we say this every week as pastors and preachers, one of my very favorite uh, passages in all the Bible. Why? Because it's so honest. Because here's a guy who was saying, what's the point? He starts with, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. He's making a declarative statement after he's processed, but now he's going to take us right into the mess, right into the Um, inner complaint and murmuring and the temptation to go, you know what? I'm done with you, God. Are you there? Let Asaph encourage you. He says, but as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant. There it is. As I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for there are no pains in their death and their body is fat. Again, I said this last week about that. Uh, Back For them, that was a good thing. That means you had enough in the kitchen or in the pantry, in the fridge, whatever equivalent of, of that is. He says, "I was envious. They're not troubled like other men." And the next, next slide, skipping down in the psalm. He, he mentions that for verse after verse, and then he says, "Surely in vain, I've kept my heart pure. What does that sound like? It is vain to serve the Lord. He's processing. Here's the difference. He's processing with the Lord and probably with a few faithful others. He went and they spoke to one another. Because, Sorry, by the way, if you didn't know, Asaph was the worship pastor under David. He had to get up every time David said, hey, we just whooped the Philistines again. Let's have a worship service and praise the Lord. This is like Eric going, man, my week has been really cruddy and y'all have no idea, but now I got to get up and be authentic. So, this isn't just some guy. This is a guy who had to lead God's people in worship. And he's like, I'm wrestling with, is it vain? Is this empty? He says, um, go back one. Yeah, surely in vain i kept my heart pure. Now go forward. He says, when I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until, most important word in the psalm. I was just like that. And later in the psalm, he'll say, I was so embittered in my heart. I was like a beast just ready in my nerve endings to react to God and blame him. He says, I thought all this, it was troublesome until I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived therein, who's there? The arrogant who've turned their backs on God and are all about themselves and everything with God is transactional at the, at the most. And then he ends the Psalm with, he, he estimates, whom have, I, whom have I in heaven but you? The Lord is my portion and the strength of my heart forever. He says, the nearness of God is my good, even if nothing changes. And I want that because I know it's what God's invitation is to you. I want that for you today. I want you to feel from this passage, I can let go of pretending. I want you to hear that God says, hey, tell me your complaint. Tell me your frustration. Tell me your confusion. Tell it to me, but tell it to me and process it with a faithful few others who will filter you before you go spreading toxicity and not esteeming his name, but seeking to sabotage his name. He says, that's what I'm looking for. And he says, I, I've got to close here. But in, in 316b, through the rest, he pays attention, And he says, that day of distinguishing, you guys say you want, well, the righteous, what's in it for them? And it almost doesn't matter if you're righteous or wicked. God says there's a day coming. Judgment will happen. And there'll be a fire like a burning furnace. Notice a furnace means the fire will come. Fire is almost always a sign of judgment. But it's a furnace. It's not an out-of-control fire. It's a controlled fire to provide the judgment needed. But what's fire for the wicked, what's judgment for the wicked where God will be recognized and esteemed and they will be put down in their place and they will have chosen their destiny. What's a fire for the wicked is sunshine for those who are faithful, who fear and esteem his name. It's interesting at his first advent, we're about to get to the Christmas season. At his first advent, we think about estimations and esteeming him. At his first advent at Christmas and then in his life, Jesus was not esteemed. Isaiah 53. Surely our griefs, for he grew up before him like a tender shoot. This is speaking of Jesus. And like a root out of parched ground, he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not what? We did not esteem him. Next verse. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. What that means there is, just like the religious leaders, you can't be God's chosen one. You're dying on a cross. They, didn't, they esteemed him stricken by God. Oh, he was chosen by God to take God's wrath for my sin and yours. we can easily enter into just like they did we don't esteem you what's the point where are you coming through and he says well I I gave my life for you and I did so out of compassion and mercy grace and fully perfect humanity and fully God and I died in your place because apart from that you're without hope Malachi begins with love it confronts But he says, I don't want you to be left without hope. And like David in the Psalms, he says, as the deer pants for the water, my soul pants up to you. But he says, you know what? I used to go along and lead the procession to worship. He says, what what he's saying there is, I feel adrift. Do you feel adrift? Have you drifted from where your heart is wholly his, where there's a delight in him? He's not trying to beat you over the head with a stick right now. He's trying to invite you, return to me and I'll return to you. When he first came, they didn't esteem him, therefore they put him on a cross, and actually he went to that cross because of the love he set on the world, the love that he set on those who believe in him, and nothing else, no you know, bulls and goats and all that, so that we might become calves in a stall when he has freed us from living for the things of this world, when he's freed us from our sin, which is what he's made possible through the cross. I'm not a rancher, but I know if you take a little... I, I actually have been at those rodeos where they let you chase the calves and try to pull the tail off. I mean, sorry, not the tail off. The ribbon on their tail. I can tell you, if you get too close, you'll also get something else on your hand. But... <coughs> He says, for those who are, who are, are mine, you're my treasure possession. I made you my possession because I bought you with my son's life. He says, not only will judgment come to the wicked, but for the faithful, those who fear me and esteem my name. It's going to be like when you let a calf out. That energy, that freedom, that jumping around like you've never seen it. He says, but you'll know it. You want to know if it's worth it? It may not feel worth it right now, but someday I'm going to make all things beautiful. All things renewed, and his plan is for us to be part of that, so we'd esteem his name. I'm gonna put up some slides. We're actually, this is a surprise for everybody here. We're gonna talk about that first advent, because we live in light of the second one. But I want you to see Malachi is in one of our favorite Christmas hymns. You're gonna stand, we're just gonna sing two verses of Hark the Herald Angels Sing. When he says, The Son of Righteousness will rise, there'll be healing in his wings, comes from that Malachi. And we sing it. We don't celebrate and esteem him because he was a baby, but because God provided for him in all the fitting measures to be our place taker, to be the lamb that was slain, to take away your sin and mine and the sin of the world. So we're going to sing two verses and we'll be dismissed. I hope I start us on a low enough key.
1: Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb, veiled in flesh the sing. Glory to the newborn King. Now we get the Malachi verse. Hail the handborn Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness.
0: years after Isaiah said that one that won't be esteemed will be will be born and live. He was born 400 years after Malachi and 400 years after silence from God. If you think you're waiting long, be reassured that God is faithful. Have a great week.